Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Timothy Yeager on the show. Yeager is the Chief Clinical Officer at Centria Healthcare, which is the leading provider of applied behavior analysis therapy to children with autism in the country. Our conversation is wide-ranging, covering ABA, of course, pragmatism, New York-style pizza, reducing burnout in the helping industry, diagnosis as determinism, and more. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. To the best little city left in the U.S., Fresno's best! Fresno's best! Timothy, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Yeah, that's a great question. I, it's hard to give you one answer, so I'm gonna give you a couple answers if you don't mind. I think it's all contextually like just dependent. Like if I'm looking for a good breakfast, like a quick good breakfast, Fresno Bagel House has this all-in-one sandwich that's just really great. Lunch. I, I work in northern Fresno and a quick, you know, DoorDash from Teriyaki Dawn is like one of my favorites. And dinner. I if I'm going out to most of the time we go out to dinner, Tiffany and I, my my wife, uh, it's at Annex Kitchen. Big fan there. Have you had the Thai food at the Fresno bagel spot? I've seen people, I one time I went in there to eat one of those bagel sandwiches you're describing, yeah. and I saw someone literally eating some like pan and curry at 9.30 in the morning. I was like, what's going on here? I've asked myself the same question. I've never, I've never ordered it. I live in like Southeast Fresno. And so it's quite a trek to go to the Fresno bagel house. And so when I'm going there, it's typically because I have a craving for an egg bagel sandwich. So that's oh yeah. Right Especially when you've been out late at night and, you know, you roll, roll over in your kind of pajama pants and you go get one of those and you're sitting in your car kind of breathing heavy. Those things are amazing. For sure. Couldn't agree more. So I have a bunch of questions, some that are related to your current career and some kind of the, about the formation of it. So I want to start kind of early on, though, and talk about what formative experiences and family influences led you down the path to clinical work. Um, so if you could start there, that would be great for us to just kind of get your background and context. For sure. You know, honestly, it started, there's some pretty formative moments in fourth grade. Um, I, I had some experiences as a child that uh, really, when I look back, I wish there were professionals in my life that would have seen me and, and saw some struggle and, and trauma that I was going through. And it wasn't until later in life. And I, like, I, I looked back and, and did some work on my own that I kind of resolved to, to be in that professional that could see those children that are struggling and, Ultimately, in the role that I'm at now at Centria, create systems and trainings and supports so that professionals can see children for who they are, for the struggles that they have, and, you know, hopefully fill that void that, like, I wish I would have had when I was a child. On top of that, you know, I, I'm a product of Central Valley, so I've, I grew up in Selma, California, and community is really important to me, family is really important to me, and being part of a you know, a job that gives back and supports and, you know, serves has always been something that's been a part of who I was, whether it was coaching as, you know, a, a former athlete, or I was a teacher for a while. I was a school administrator for a while, all with the bent of how can I help kids really maximize their life in, in a meaningful way and really expand the, the world in which they live and work and play and, and just enjoy yeah, this question is a total left turn, but we're just going to go for it. What what did craft beer teach you about individualizing programming for people? <laughs> That's awesome. So 
it's a funny story. I was actually getting my oil changed at a Toyota dealership. And what was that, like 2007, maybe 2006, 2007, 2008. And at the time, Firestone Walker, like their salespeople, like were driving Scions. And so I saw the Scion pull up and to get their oil changed. And it was like covered in Firestone Walker. And the salesman, Doug, I think now works for uh, Tyga Sequoia. I'm like, Doug, man, your beer like changed my life. Like I went from drinking Bud Light to to Union Jack and at the time Pale 31, which is a good pale ale they used to have. And just talked about like the experiences of drinking beer and, and community and like conversations that come about from it. He then offered me a job. And <laughs> I was <laughs> I was working at Clovis Unified at the time as a, an instructional assistant in a special education classroom. And so I did that as, as a part-time job on nights and weekends. And I think ultimately, you know, one of the skills I think I learned was every individual has a unique palate. And by getting to know people and understanding their preferences, I could like cater a beer choice, right? Um, women would come into a beer event and oh, I don't like beer. I'm like, well, do you like coffee? Do you like chocolate? And like, well, here's a Walker's Reserve beer that you may like. Oh, I don't like dark beer. We'll just give this one a try. And <laughs> Be able to have a conversation, get to know people, get to empathize and, and ultimately align that to, to the way I can help them, I think is somewhat connected. Um, and I also got paid like in beer at times, which is pretty fantastic. <laughs> not, a, not a bad thing at all. No. We're going to jump now to talk about Columbia a little bit. Yeah. What didn't you learn at Columbia about working with children with autism that you would add to the curriculum? And do you think there's a correlation between educational attainment and the quality of a clinician? Mm. What a great question. Grad school is a pretty formative experience for me. I, I was an undergrad here at Fresno State and the professor at the time was going to accept me into the master's program at Fresno State. And she encouraged me to apply to PhD programs across the country. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to apply to a PhD. Pro- I'm not going to a PhD program. I have a house here. I have kids. I'm married. I'm not, I'm not leaving. And so I applied to like the top programs that I never thought I'd get into. And six months later, I was moving to New York city, selling the house, selling everything I owned and like literally moving with just suitcases and in, in a plane. And it was an incredibly formative experience. And I learned so much at Columbia. I think the, the one thing I didn't learn though, was how to be a leader, how to be empathetic and yeah, you know, I came out of grad school incredibly like arrogant, thinking that I knew everything, thinking that I knew best. And in a clinical space, you may know a lot, but the clients you serve know themselves better. And the families that you serve know themselves better. And so um that's something I had to learn after grad school. I think that applies to not only clinical work, but just my role as a leader and supporting people in general. That like I may have an idea, but it's truly the partnership that um, can illuminate what's best. And then to your, your second question, there's a really cool study that that came out of a dissertation at Columbia in in the in our grad program, and they had a really robust training program of what we call what's board certified behavior analysts. At Columbia is also they're also teachers and teaching assistants and and school principals, and the data showed regardless of a significant number of different variables, income, parents' education, demographics, you know, the biggest predictor of student progress was the skill set of the individuals working with that student. 
and that students in, in, in we call them students because it was a lab school run by these behavior analysts that were also teachers, but the greatest progress was attained by the, the instructors or behavior analysts that had the you know, highest level of training, which seems to line up with what we, we see in education at, at times. Do you think that's more due to conscientiousness of the person or the actual training that they received? In other words, are, is, that, is what that measuring their ability to work hard and complete a task or the actual education that they have? I think it's, if I was to pick one skill set that I learned in grad school, it's problem solving and the ability to be like, have some humility in a situation to where maybe a student isn't learning, client isn't progressing, to be able to take a step back and look at all the variables on, of like what are contributing to that and like what could I do differently, I think is ultimately, you know, what's at play. And and there is some like grit that's responsible for that, right? That I'm not going to give up um, on, on the student or this child that I, I'm, I'm ultimately responsible for their development and their learning and I'm going to figure it out. I think problem solving, I think that honestly, when I think about my work with the staff that I support now and, and, and the behavior analysts that I oversee, problem solving is one of the biggest things that we're working on developing as a skill for our professionals. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, public education because uh, you spend some time in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, what kinds of institutional support do you think that teachers need to effectively support a range of students? And then secondarily, how would you respond to those that are arguing that teachers are being shifted away from academics to becoming uh, quasi-social workers that are more yeah. focused on emotional well-being and less concerned with academic rigor? Do you think that's a false dichotomy or do you think that, you know, that is happening in classrooms? It's a great question. When I look back at my experiences in education and uh, one of my biggest struggles so I was a school administrator at a, a charter school in downtown Fresno called Kepler Neighborhood School. And one of the biggest challenges that I had is I, as most educators, have an incredibly big heart to help and support the students that we're teaching. One of the hardest things to, to like come and reconcile is that not everything that the student needs can be met in the classroom. And whether it's social emotional support, I had a number of, of students that were you know, in and out of foster homes, had a, a, a wide range of, of needs. And when you're an empathetic person and you see a child struggling, you know, it's hard not to look at all the other things that need to be dealt with. But Ultimately, I think those are, that, that's a societal thing that we have to try to figure out and not necessarily an educational thing that we have to figure out. And so when I take a step back and like, what do we want to achieve as a function of public education, right? When we think about the types of jobs that we want our students to be successful in, we want them to thrive in, you know, I think about the ability to communicate both like verbal speaking communication as well as like reading and, and listening. I think about problem solving. I think about collaboration. I think about like leveraging technology in, in ways that can like make an impact. And I think about, you know, some of the problems that we have in public education is we have a need to measure success and growth of clients or students, I'm sorry, but we don't necessarily have the, the right tools to do so. And when you think about the skills that I talked about, like needing our graduates to attain, you're not going to get that in the standardized test. 
if you think back, like if I talk back a little bit, my time at Kepler, I, I truly tried to create an environment where we had like students that were working on things that mattered in the real world that worked on those things. Right. And so I know on your, your podcast, Baker is, you know, the MC. Mm-hmm. Jacob was a teacher at Kepler 40. We had an art of rap class. We had mm-hmm. students who had never written a paper, you know, writing bars and learning how to rhyme, learning how to perform, learning how to communicate, learning how to collaborate amongst people, right? They're learning how to use technology, but that can't be assessed in a standardized assessment, right? And so I think, you know, one of the problems of public education is like we're really tying our teachers' hands. We don't really define like what success really looks like. And if we don't know what success really looks like and how to measure it, it's really hard to empower teachers to achieve it. And when the the gap between like assessment and real world outcomes that we want to achieve widens, I think it becomes even a more frustrating thing for our teachers. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, someone that was in the classroom just a few years ago, I can attest to that feeling of a kind of a, a lack of direction. You know, there's no telos, there's no, there's no kind of like point that we're aiming towards. I mean, there's kind of these vague, like descriptions of success. I mean, we, in, in the school district I was teaching at, we had this uh, graduate profile thing that we we're kind of aiming our students towards, but then the next question is kind of why, and then if they don't really understand the why, you know, it, it can be challenging to articulate to them the purpose and function of, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. And I, I do think that metacognition does matter for kids. For sure. And I would say there's actually a correlation to the work that we do now, which is in order for our clients to make progress at Century, we really work hard to get clients to a state of being happy, relaxed, and engaged. That in order to like endure challenge, in order to be asked to do things that like may make you uncomfortable or learn a new skill, you have to be a you know at a, a baseline that is you know stable and healthy and ideally happy. I think that's where like to your question around like teachers being like social emotional support workers and like I don't discredit that the need that are that students in today like need that support. I just challenge the assumption that like teachers need to be the ones that provide it. Okay. So my next question is kind of interrelated. Let's imagine that Bob Nelson gets on a plane and goes to Cancun for a couple of days. And he calls you and says, I need you to take over for superintendent for the week. You got carte blanche to institute any policies to support, you know, you know, kids with autism or kids that need extra support and you can do whatever you want. You got all the budget you want. What would you do that week? That's a great question. I think here's where I've made mistakes in the past. Um, I've gone into jobs, my job at Century right now, I walked into a situation that needed a lot of improvement and or when I was like, you know, I, I used to be a director at an autism center at Fresno State, and I walked into that situation, and I, and I felt like there's a lot of improvement needed. I think it's really arrogant to think that one person can make that change, right? And and in in my failures in the past, it's been when I thought I was, I was the fix, right? Like, if you had one good leader, one good person that could do it, like you know, if it was me. Like, what would I do? And I. I think what I've learned over the over the years, and I've learned now, and I think the success that we're having as an organization now at Centria, which is the best thing I could do as a leader is listen to my people and organize all the stakeholders in a way that like can get them aligned on what are the needs, you know, how can we achieve those needs, and then really empower the people that are closest to the problem to solve the problem. 
and as a leader, be there to support and remove barriers, fund services, fund the appropriate measures to do so. Yeah, I think there is some quotation from someone that says about when they're talking about you know problem solving that you should spend ninety five percent of your time listening and then five percent acting. Yeah. And I think that you know if that if that message could be spread across various institutions, we'd probably have more healthy organizations. I would yeah. imagine. When I speak about the arrogance of me coming out of grad school, then that was flipped, right? It was 95% of me talking and 5% listening. And the fact of the matter is that even if someone has the right idea or thought, like it's going to take a team of people to like lead change. And the only way we're going to do that is by empowering people to, to be part of that process. Let's jump to ABA because we're, yeah. we're going to be talking about that a little bit more here. And I want to get real basic to start. What is it? What is ABA? Both what it stands for and then what it is exactly. And where do you locate it kind of within the taxonomy of therapy in relation to things like psychotherapy, occupational therapy, CBT, stuff like that? Yeah. Great question. ABA therapy is applied behavior analysis. It's a therapeutic approach that aims to increase socially meaningful skills and behaviors and individuals, often with developmental disabilities, oftentimes autism spectrum disorder. And so you have the approach to increase socially meaningful skills. There's also a part of our approach. It's reducing behaviors that are interfering with quality of life, uh, one's ability to participate in the community independently, um, any type of behavior that's interfering with, with joy and one's quality of life. Then the taxonomy of psychology and therapy, it, behaviorism, it's, you know, it's, it's really founded in what's called radical behaviorism in the 1950s. And it was kind of a response to like psychodynamic theory. The founder of this approach was Fred Skinner, B.F. Skinner. And while its origins were in the in 1950s, it's, it's evolved quite a bit in the last 70 years. So much so that now as a, as a therapeutic approach in the last decade, it's, it's now recognized by insurance companies to to be an effective choice to support individual disabilities, specifically developmental disabilities, namely autism as a therapeutic approach that truly works on developing skills and takes a somewhat of a humanistic approach to working with individuals, knowing that we're all capable of achieving goals. And, and if given the right skills, we are going to make the choices to you know, alleviate harm and pain and, and, and move towards like joy and, an increased quality of life. And I know that positive reinforcement is a, a, a big part of ABA, yeah. but many of us grew up in the world of sticks and carrots. <laughs> so when you're communicating with parents and you're explaining what ABA is to them and you know the, the fact that there are a lot more carrots than sticks, mm -hmm. um, how, how do you articulate that for people that had kind of more traditional upbringings in that sense? Yeah, that's a great question. And we, I do it. I do a lot here, I, especially you know, growing up in a very conservative home myself. There were more sticks than carrots at times, so I, I completely understand that as well. Like, so a couple of things. Behavior analysis is rooted in something called pragmatism. That's for you and your audience, not necessarily what I would say to a parent. But you know, pragmatism is this idea that we do what works, and the whole goal of behavior ABA, ABA therapy is to arrange conditions for our clients to do things that work for them. And when I say work for them, accesses things that ideally are naturally occurring in the environment that they enjoy, they find pleasurable, so that they do those things more often in the future. Um, you know, I, I have four kids myself, and when I think about raising them, you always have a choice of like, should I punish this so that, and punishment by definition is something that you do that will stop the occurrence of this thing in the future. 
or do I reinforce it? Reinforcement by definition is something that you do that increases the likelihood of that thing occurring in the future. And there's certain things that you need to punish, right? Like I don't want my kid to run across the street, but reinforcement teaches. Reinforcement not only tells them what not to do, but it shows them what they can do. And when you're working with individual with, with individuals, often individuals that have like significant delays, they may be engaging in things that you don't want them to do, but they're only doing that because they don't know what to do. And reinforcement is the approach to do that. It, it teaches skills. It develops repertoires. It, it puts people in contact with the things that make them happy. Uh, and oftentimes when you live a life in that way, you're less likely to do things that, that are destructive or hurtful or harmful to others and yourself. Yeah. I kind of look at it like a little bit of what the Friant Dam looked like recently, where water is going to go where it's going to go. And mm -hmm. when you get overloaded with emotions, it's going to spill over the top and go over the top of the spillway and then come flooding out where places where you don't want it to be. And, you know, lots of people focus on, you know, trying to build up extra barriers on top, you know, to prevent it from overflowing. But oftentimes, I think the more productive thing is to figure out where it's going to go once it comes over that top, you know, finding, finding a, a landing strip or a pathway for it. And I, another thing I would say is there's this great book called Humankind, A Hopeful History, where it, you know, kind of tries to reframe this narrative that we, many of us have been parted that, you know, we're, we are more bad than good and that we need, mm. we need heavy structures and, you know, a stick, a Leviathan to keep us, you know, kind of contained. But this book charts a, charts a different picture of humanity, a, a hopeful humanity where yeah. human nature is an inherent good. And that, that left a big imprint on me, especially as someone that grew up believing the opposite, kind of Lord of the Flies style. If you leave a bunch yeah. of kids alone on an island, they're going to, someone's going to die as opposed to maybe they're going to do some art projects or you know, I don't know. Work together to know in each... a meaningful way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get what you're saying. And it, it, it is super complicated because it's an ideology that's embedded in so much that yeah. we deal with. For sure. There's a, Aubrey Daniels is a, a member of this industry that I study and that I work in. And he, he has a quote that says, behavior goes where reinforcement flows. And your, your, your damn statement made kind of remind me of that, which is if you want certain things to happen, Reinforcement can make those things happen, right? And people are naturally, are we are behaving organisms and we're going to continue to behave in ways always. And, and it's going to go towards what's being reinforced. And I too, I, I, I take a humanistic approach to, to a view of who we are and our potential as, as human beings. And there's actually a branch of behavior analysis called acceptance and commitment therapy. And oftentimes we talk about like carrots and sticks. You think about young children or like, really manipulative ways to use reinforcement or punishment, but acceptance and commitment therapy outlines a, a, a perspective, which is that when human beings uh, commit to actions and do things that align to their values, they live a life of positive reinforcement. And it's those moments in which you are engaging in actions that are not aligned to your values, where, you know, maybe burnout happens at work, mental health issues happen. You have to like grin and bear and just take the work, but happiness and joy comes from a life where you're living in, in alignment with your values. And, and that is also positive reinforcement. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the term autism spectrum disorder. So many of us observed 
in our lifetimes, that transition from autism being kind of a static category or diagnosis to a spectrum. And so I have a two-part question. I don't know why I've had so many two-part questions mm-hmm. this time, but that's just nature of the beast today, I guess. Can you discuss first the impact that had on people's understanding of autism? And then mm-hmm. secondarily, what's your point of view on the discussions by people like Gabor Mate, for example, who want to de-emphasize this kind of determinism embedded into the idea that you are your diagnosis, quote unquote. Yeah. A great question. So having worked with thousands of, of individuals with autism, the spectrum really resonates with me, right? And they, they say, if you've met one child with autism, you've met just one child with autism and that there's a, a wide variety of differences. And And that's important. I think it's also challenged at some point our view of disability and and, and what that looks like. And and it's really, I think, created a space to where there's a wide range of people who are looking for support who can get support. And just that encompassing definition of what it is has led to like rising rates, right? So when I was in grad school, it's like one in 110 individuals were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder by the age of four, and now it's like one in 36. The question of what is autism, is, and I think it's a, it's a great question, and it's a nuanced question, because I think there's multiple ways in which you can answer that question. And, and to your point around, like, you are your diagnosis or not, I think that's even a, a nuanced answer that there's a lot of different perspectives there. So what is autism? You could talk about through, like, the diagnostic criteria, right? Autism is a, a diagnosis that, you know, with individuals that demonstrate persistent uh, deficits in social communication, social inter- interaction across like variety, variety of settings. They also engage in like rigid and repetitive behaviors like arm flapping or rocking or oftentimes like destructive, aggressive, problematic behavior that you want to decrease. It's a behavioral diagnosis. There's no blood test that will say that like this individual has autism. There's also like a neurodiverse perspective of autism which like really rejects the idea of it's a deficit-based thing. And it's just like a neuro difference. These individuals have like a unique perspective. I think the nuance part is I grew up and just in my language that I'm using today, I, I grew up in a, in a special, you know, a, a child centered perspective, which was like, or a child first perspective, which was a child with autism. Like they weren't their, their diagnosis. Right. But then you also have this neurodiverse perspective where people like embrace it. Like it's not something to separate themselves from. And so many people advocate for the use of like using autism first. So they may call themselves an autistic individual or an autistic child because it's not something they're just with, it's something they're proud of and it's not something to be ashamed of. Ultimately at Centria and the work that I do, we're really about just supporting those individuals from whatever perspective you want, right? Like our goal is ultimately to provide care, support services to ensure that our clients you know, maximize their independence, live a life of joy and, and ultimately like achieve their dreams, hopes and aspirations. And so the question is pretty nuanced. And I think there's a, there's a lot to that. If and it would take a lot more time for us, to like dig into the, the depths of that, the, that answer. Absolutely. And I, I was more just kind of broaching this subject of, 
you know, we are in a society where we're getting more and more sophisticated diagnoses of things that are more yeah. individualized to the person, which I think is a boon for us. But then it also makes it more complicated to understand how things work if there is such a variety. And then it requires a lot more intentionality when you're designing programming, if it does exist on a spectrum versus just, you know, here's a square square thing and I'm going to put a square object in that thing. You Most know, if, every, if every shape is different, you know, if it's a thumbprint for everybody in their diagnosis, then your prescriptions get so much more complicated, right? Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately what we've, what we're working on at Century right now, which is knowing that there's such a wide spectrum of clients that we serve and knowing that we all want to achieve like progress for our clients. We've developed a care model that looks at, because uh, there's another definition in here with the service that we provide, which they have to be what's called medically necessary services. Like, how do you take a, a very disparate group of individuals, provide training and support to the clinicians and technicians that work with them so that we can provide both individualized care and care that's medically necessary and achieve specific set of goals? And what we've done is define across a variety of domains, like what does independence and success look like for our clients across communication or across community safety, safety across socialization? across the level of support needed at school to be successful and then working with clients at times and their families of like, what does success look like for you on this spectrum and how can we help achieve you to get those goals? Yeah. We're going to transition to a lighter category that I call overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff at you. You tell me whether you think they're over underrated and why Uh, we'll start with the favorite, which is me and Ed's pizza over underrated. Underrated. I have lived. Can I I give you an explanation? Of course. I've lived across the country. I lived in New York City for six years. I've most recently lived in Detroit. And Detroit actually has Detroit-style pizza. I've been to Chicago. And uh, there's nothing like coming back home and having me and Ed's pizza. Is that your nostalgia? Or do you think objective? You know, I mean, obviously, it's subjective because it's taste. Yeah. But like, you know, how, do you think it's nostalgia there? Or do you think it for you, it's it's it, there's a real well, I think, difference? Yeah, I think there's definitely nostalgia there. Right. But there's something about the flaky crust that uh, it's both chewy, crunchy has that little like cornmeal to it. That, like I just, I always gravitate towards. What was your take on New York style pizza? Depends on the pizza. It depends on the time of the day and how many drinks I've had, but like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not for a floppy crust. Right. And so I just can't, I can't do it. Like, it's just not my, not my thing. Got it. All right. Next one. Token economies over underrated. Mm. I think they hmm. think they're overrated. Okay. Can you explain what they are and why? Yeah. You think they're so overrated? token economies, well, there's a wide definition of token economies, which is like we work in a token economy. We work and we get tokens for us. Our tokens are, are is dollars and quarters and you know money. Token economies can often be used in school settings, educational placements, and even in, in ABA therapy as a, a way to bring tangible rewards, a system of reinforcement, as we talked about earlier, so that when students achieve goals or clients achieve goals, that they like earn tokens and then those tokens can be used to access backup reinforcers. They can go to the treasure box and, and, and turn them in. The reason why I think they're overrated, I think they have utility. I think the reason that they're overrated is the actual goal of like education or ABA therapy is to put individuals in contact with the natural reinforcers that occur. And I think token systems are often overused and 
and not faded out in a way to where people can come in contact with those natural contingencies, right? So an example is like the reinforcement for getting a correct answer at school should be that like getting correct answers is reinforcing. Learning is reinforcing. The praise from a teacher, the acknowledgement from your parent is reinforcing. But when you use these systems, and sometimes you have to use those systems initially as a as like what we call a prosthetic reinforcer, like a, like a crutch kind of just like prop up a behavior. But if you don't like start to fade the use of those things out, then they become a limiter to like expanding the the repertoire of the student or the or the, or the child that we're working with. Got it. Next one's an either or, Shake Shack or In and Out. Oh, In and Out. In and out. I, I know I, there's a shake because I've been in that part of New York. I know there's Shake Shack just right across the street from Columbia. I'm pretty yep, sure. Yep. And there's a Shake Shack in in Metro Detroit where I lived. I think they're different. I I just love In and Out. It, it's probably nostalgia as well. I, I wish their French fry situation is a lot better at In and Out. I'm just not a big fan of the In and Out French fries. If I had my ideal situation, me and Tiffany, my wife, have done this many of times. Is go to In and Out, get a get a cheeseburger, go to McDonald's, get French fries and go to Sonic and get a cherry limeade. And that's my deal. Like fast food. Wow. That, that <laughs> that's the stars are aligned right there. I've not heard is, someone do that before. <laughs> yeah. So she's from Hanford and in Hanford, that is just like just down the road. You can just go to one by one well and then it works out. Wow. Okay. Next one. Uh, early start Denver model or sometimes referred to as ESDM. Mm-hmm. Is it over or underrated? I actually think it's underrated. Um, and let me expound on that a little bit. Like, uh, for those who are listening, um, early start Denver model is like a developmental approach to ABA therapy for younger children. One of the, the biggest misunderstandings about ABA therapy, I think the industry as a whole and behavior analysts have done a really poor job in communicating is that it's not just about skill building. It's not just about teaching new skills, that there are specific developmental milestones that need to occur for individuals to thrive in a community. You know, a good example is listening to voices. I have a hunter. He's five weeks old, a new baby boy. Around the second trimester, in the second trimester, he started to hear his mom's voice and even my voice, if I was talking close enough and he was actually, he actually, when born, preferred the voice of his mom over any other voice, right? And that's, you think back to your introductory psych class, that's very similar to like Pavlovian conditioning or Pavlov's dog to where like he, Hunter was in the most perfect environment with all of his needs being taken care of. And that was being conditioned with a bell. And that has profound impact on his development moving forward, that he can listen to voices and orient to people talking and and when that's not learned and those milestones aren't occurred, significant delays happen. And the early start Denver model like starts to look at some of these pivotal skills and these developmental milestones that need to occur in an individual's development so that future learning can happen. It's like the learning to learn skills that they can't be overlooked. And EDSM, you know, works on that. Okay. Next one. You're walking out of the library at Columbia. You got a book and a coffee. And you're going to go read in a park. Do you go to Riverside or Morningside? Mm. Go to Riverside. It's a good question. It's a really good question. I really appreciate your prep here. Well, Morningside, sometimes a sketchy park. So it's like when <laughs> I was there, it wasn't always the safest park. 
And in fact, there's a, there's a moment there. And I think maybe my like quick reaction was based off this moment when my daughter Rosalind and I were playing at Morningside Park and I thought it was gunshots, but it was the firecrackers. And I remember jumping on top of my daughter, like laying on top of her, scared that she was going to get shot. And it took a while for me to go back to that park. Riverside, though, the view of the Hudson, right? It's, it, you know, I think it's just much more like relaxing spot to, uh, to gaze. Yeah. Maybe, you know, they say that landlocked countries always have a harder time thriving. So maybe that's a landlocked park as opposed to a park on the Could river. Could be. Yeah. Next one, sensory swings. Yeah. So I think they, hmm, depends on who you ask and what professions using them. I think as a behavior analyst, they're probably underrated. I don't think we use them enough. And, and, and I'll say this, I don't necessarily think that like a sensory swing might is like therapeutic in the sense of it's teaching skills or, you know, someone's learning. But it does provide a sense of calm to some of the clients that we work with, and it does get them in a place of being relaxed and sometimes even happy. And when you're asking, when we're working with our autistic clients and we're really asking them and challenging them to, to engage in things that may be difficult or hard or cause them to like get to a place of vulnerability that many people are uncomfortable with, having a place to go back to where you can be relaxed and where you can be happy is a, is a great place to be. Right. So, so one client, you know, to our clients, it may be a sensory swing to me, it might be my patio with a cigar and a glass of whiskey. Right. But like having that place to like go back to and, and, and feel like safe, secure and, and happy and relaxed. I think it's a really important thing. Okay. Hazy IPAs over underrated. <sighs> Overrated. Man, okay. I just can't, I just can't. What's interesting, I, I used to love IPAs. I told you like, you know, early on that the Union Jack was like my favorite IPA from Firestone. And I, I, I've drank in all the IPAs and I, I typically prefer like a really good West Coast IPA, but there's something about a hazy IPA. I just, I've gotten to a point where I just can't drink them anymore. Yeah. Well, they, it does seem they're kind of slipping in status amongst, yep. amongst beers and you don't see, there was a while there where it would be an entire menu of them. And then like three kind of other options for the weirdos that like something <laughs> yes. else. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, and I haven't seen it. They're not dominating the menu like they once for were. sure. And I think that's a good thing. Next one, John Dewey's philosophy of pragmatism. I think it's underrated. I think that if our education leaned more on it, and I think if people more understood pragmatism, I think we'd have a better understanding of people and a better understanding of how to arrange environments for people to be successful, classrooms for people to be successful. And I think to our conversation earlier about like believing in like the potential of human beings that like have a fully understanding that like people engage in the things that work and people can learn best and putting them in situations where the environment elicits and, and, and puts them in a place to be successful is I think really powerful. Just a couple more on this overrated versus underrated section, fidget spinners. You know, this is a funny question. You, if you ask my team, they would say that they are underrated. You go to any conference with us and you go to a century booth and you're going to see a bunch of fidget spinners. But I think I'm going to say overrated and I'll tell you why. I think they have a purpose. I think that purpose has been overused by, by too many kids, right? Like for kids who don't need to fidget, you shouldn't have a fidget, right? But if you, if I remember back in my days of being a school administrator, there were a lot of fidgets out there that aren't necessarily being used by kids. And they often used to be used to distract a classroom or 
uh, a group of kids. But for those who need it, I would say they're underrated, right? Like that there are kids that need an appropriate way to just like release some energy. Mm-hmm. Um, some adults do it, right? Like they, they tap their finger, they tap their leg, they twirl their hair. And sometimes our kids don't have the appropriate ways to do that. And so it's a way to teach them. Okay. And this one's kind of a, next one's kind of a reach, but I know you were at teacher's college for a little bit and she's a big deal yep. there. The philosophy of Lucy Calkins. Hmm. Reading, right? Is it reading? Yeah, 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 yeah. So for those who haven't heard of it, and this is something that there's been a lot of controversy about recently, yep. which is the idea that getting kids to fall in love with reading before, you know, or in tandem with learning the elements of phonics and different things like that. And there's there's been some big exposés recently in some of the major newspapers about some of its deficiencies. I was curious your perspective. Yeah. So I actually like, I fall in the opposite camp of Lucy Calkins. And so I don't discredit that someone needs to fall in love with reading. And I think that that starts in childhood when parents are reading to their children. You know, my, my, you know, my four-year-old right now doesn't know how to read, but uh, he has a bunch of books and he'll go in this room, he'll pick up books and turn through the pages. And that's a way that he like passes time and he enjoys that. And we had some research out of Columbia from my, from our lab that actually showed that that choice, like when a child goes into a room free of, you know, free of obstruction, they can choose whatever they want to choose and they choose books, they're going to learn to read faster. Um, I think that as a country and as, as an educational system, we have done a significant disservice in getting away from like phonetic instruction. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of theories out there. And I think that with each new theory that gets us away from a phonetic approach to, to learning to read, our kids are reading worse. And I think it's a, it's a disservice, especially to the kids that may not be part of communities that are supporting them to, to learn to read outside of school. Yeah. Okay. Last one. And I have to ask it because you're from Selma. The raisins over underrated. Oh man, I can't stand them. <laughs> I can't stand them. Does that Growing make you in... some kind of outsider in Selma or do people in Selma, even though it's the raisin capital of the world, they just don't necessarily like them personally? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't, you know, growing up in Selma, the raisin capital world, growing up with the California raisins, right? Like that was, I remember dressing up as a California raisin for like Halloween <laughs> one year. Like that was a big deal. And I remember like sun-made raisins were always part of like our lunch bags and such, but there's just something about them. I just can't, I think ultimately what it is, is like the raisin is just too late in the life cycle of a grape to make wine. Right. And so I just prefer grapes and wine. Yeah. Okay. We're going to jump into some, some questions about your role as uh, a clinical director. Uh, when you're yeah. interviewing a potential clinician to join your team, what are some of the attributes you look for and how long does it take you normally to identify whether someone's going to be a quality clinician at your organization? Yeah. It's a good question. First and foremost, I look at values and I talk a lot about values and values alignment. As a as a care model, ABA therapy is going through quite a bit of a transition right now and its approach to providing care to our clients. And so 20 years ago, ABA therapy was, you know, a hallmark and known for like a compliance-driven model of therapy, how to arrange conditions to get kids to do specific things and like not give in when clients weren't engaged in those things and then like, force them to comply. And 
I, I was part of that model when I started in ABA therapy, and that's just not what we do today. And the science is involved, the research is involved, our, our tools have involved, evolved. And so we have much now what we call a ascent driven care model or a client first care model to where the client ultimately dictates the care that we provide. And if they want to engage, then we arrange contingencies to like have them engage. And if they don't, we honor that. Which to a naive audience who like may not understand like what I'm talking about, that may sound obvious. Like, can you imagine going and talking to a therapist and the therapist forcing you to do things, right? Like that doesn't make a lot of sense, but yet that was a hallmark of, of the treatment model previously. And so knowing that we're in that transition, I first and foremost look at the values of the clinicians that I'm interviewing and ensuring that their values align with the model of care that we're implementing at Centria. And that I can, you know, I, I can suss that out within 45 minutes. So it's some very pointed questions about uh, their values and then the specific practices that they engage in to like work with the clients that they serve. How do you train trainers? It's a great question. We are in the midst of doing that right now. So in AB therapy, there are two specific different roles. There's a behavior technician. Behavior technicians work directly with our clients anywhere from 10 hours a week, sometimes 40 hours a week. They're working with clients and it's an incredible difficult job and it's an incredibly important job to the work that we do and the outcomes that we're trying to achieve for our clients. And there's also BCBAs, board certified behavior analysts, and those function as the, the behavior technician supervisor. Along with our like new care model that we're rolling out across the country, it involves a, a new 50 hour training that we're providing to behavior technicians. And so we've hired 50 behavior technician trainers across the country that are providing this 50 hour training to our technicians. And so we, we have a model of, you know, an introductory training to the, the material and, the, and, and how to train to our trainers. And then those trainers go through the training as a participant in the, in the, in the training. And then once they've gone through it as a participant in the training, they go through it as like a peer, like coach with a trainer. And then the coach observes them training. And we have a set of like competencies and things that we want to see our trainers do. We have a set of outcomes that we want our participants in training to achieve. And then we have follow-up like check-ins with our trainers to ensure that they, there's no drift. And like drift is natural. Drift is like when you are trained to do something, then over time it slowly drifts away from that thing. We have like a re-coaching and, and just a follow-up practice. Um, ultimately, we'll let the data decide though. So if you know we want our behavior technicians when they graduate to be able to do X, Y, and Z, as long as we measure X, Y, and Z with our clients in the field, and as long as our technicians continue to do that, then that typically means the health of the training is really good. So when you're in the helping profession, burnout is almost inevitable. What kind of stopgap measures do you put in place to maybe ameliorate it? I'm saying, I'm not saying you can yeah. prevent it because I don't think you can, but how do you think about helping people avoid that at some degree? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's like, it's pervasive in our industry right now. And the things that we're working on to try to do, to try to address it are, are a couple of things. One, in helping professions, what you typically see is like caseloads continue to rise, right? Like we talk to social worker, their caseloads are like unmanageable. When you have an unmanageable caseload, you're typically engaging in behaviors or work that don't necessarily align to the, your values, right? So you're doing a lot of paperwork, right? You, you, if you have a caseload of 80 patients, like you can't meaningfully support and help them, but you're doing a lot of administrative work just to manage it. 
Well, if that work isn't necessarily aligned to your values, you're living a life that's not necessarily reinforcing and burnout is more likely to happen. Um, in our, I just hired, we have an office here in Fresno, a quality assurance office that I'm starting. And I just hired a, a BCBA to, to work for me. And she's working for a local agency and she has 30 clients that she's responsible for overseeing every week. And in an industry like ABA therapy, 30 is a lot. 10 to 12 would be like the average caseload for a BCBA. And at 30, you're just checking a box, hoping that like clients are making progress, but you're not really engaged and enjoying the work. So one thing we're doing is we reduce, we reduce caseloads. And so we put caps. Uh, our BCBAs oversee no more than 10, 10 clients in, in a week or as their, as their caseload. There's does also that, training. Does that butt up against financial constraints too? I mean, how, how do you balance that? Yeah. So the, the goal, and it does, there's a, there's a balance, right? If you think about, there's a Venn diagram in, in, in our industry, which is like quality and like fiscal sustainability, right? And there's a middle to that Venn diagram and you can get there, but sometimes people stay in the quality side and not the fiscal sustainability and those companies go away and they close. Sometimes companies just stay in the fiscal sustainability and they don't deliver quality. And there's a number of businesses out there that that continue to go down that route. Why I'm at Century is because they've committed to me and they continue to demonstrate on my executive team and my ownership group that like we can stay in that middle spot to where we can be both like deliver high quality care and be fiscally sustainable. And so you reduce caseloads to 10. That means that the, like we have to hit certain metrics around like billable requirements for a BCBA so that they can be productive enough to like pay for their job. And that, and that's what we work on is like doing the job well, doing it with quality and doing it in a way that's sustainable for us. There's think- also trainings. There's real quick. There's just trainings around like self-management, like a book that I've really gravitated towards as a, as a leader is a book called getting things done. It's a, it's a system to manage like tasks and responsibilities and information and thoughts. Well, I'm sh- like on the verge of burnout or I've been significantly burned out in the past before and I had to take a, a hiatus from work at, at, at a time but on the verge there. What that often looks like for me is like waking up at 2 a.m. stressed thoughts in my head. Can't get them out like nervous about the things I need to do. Constant post-it notes everywhere with like things I need to get done. Right getting things done. And we provide a training on, on this, getting things done system to our, to our clinicians. It's like, how do you manage your life? How do you manage your schedule? How do you manage the things you need to do? The assessments you need to complete the parent meetings you need to have. And if you have it all within a system that you trust, when six o'clock comes around and your shifts over for the day, like you can leave all that stuff at work. But if you don't have a system that you can trust, that stuff just carries with you. And then that 40 hour a week work, you know, feels like 80 and 90 hours a week. We're going to jump into Fresno specific questions now. Yeah. Are there certain environmental issues in Fresno that make it challenging for children with autism and their families to thrive? It's hmm. a great question. I, I, when I think about Fresno, I think about the, the autistic community. I, I think of one that's quite inclusive and supportive. I think Fresno is quite forward leaning with respect to its inclusiveness. I would generally like to see more parks in the community aligned to being more inclusive in nature. We have some inclusive parks and yeah. What's the best park in Fresno? The most inclusive park. Yeah. It's the one on the West side. What's it called? The name is forget escapes me, but we could probably find it. You could probably put it in the show. Yeah. Notes. Um, yeah. Why, why is it inclusive? It's built with, it's built with inclusiveness, like as the, the priority for the park. Right. And so there's a number of different structures and activities at the park that allow for as many different types of people to, to engage in. Right. So 
basketball courts are you have you have hoops that can like lower and rise yeah it's built on a court that's somewhat soft you have a baseball field that is not grass or dirt but like a you know sports material that allows for wheelchairs to be a part of it you have swings that are inclusive and like the different types of people that can go on those swings you have a play structure that allows for a variety of different types of activities and and different able bodies to like engage on the activities it's to be honest it's like I said, I live in West or East Fresno with my young children. I, I, I drive there quite a bit when they were younger. That's the thing about inclusiveness is like inclusiveness can like build in structures for specific people or specific types of people in mind, but they often benefit a lot of people, right? You think about like sidewalk cutouts, right? Sidewalk cutouts were were built for, you know, people with wheelchairs, but the elderly benefit from it. They don't have to lift their feet, feet up as high. I benefit from now with the stroller when I'm pushing my kids around the, on the neighborhood walk that I can use a stroller and go through it. And so inclusiveness, I know, you know, at times people like for whatever reason have you know, different perspectives on it, but when done well, it, it, it creates an environment for everybody to benefit from. Before we close with book recommendations, I just wanted to give you a chance to tell maybe a success story through your organization, working with a family that maybe had some challenges, obviously keeping all their information anonymous, yeah. but just to share share kind of the impact that the work can have on on individuals. Oh, that's great. There's, there's a number of success stories that I could talk about. You know, there's a few that come to mind. We are, I spoke earlier about this different approach to ABA therapy that's much more compassionate and client-centered and ascent-driven. There's some technologies that we use, and one's called a practical functional assessment and a skills-based treatment, just really wordy stuff that really talks about how do you work with clients to like honor their voice and teach them skills while working through some very challenging, dangerous, injurious behaviors that they may be engaging in. And I think about you know a, a seven-year-old client that we had who was engaging in these very aggressive and dangerous behaviors, scratching and biting. And within a month's time of working with that client, the mother reached out to me without prompting and said, I just took our child to dinner for the first time. Uh, She sat there, she ate with us, she talked, she enjoyed the night. And for the first time as a parent, I was able to sit back and just relax and, and enjoy the night. That's a powerful experience. Knowing that I have, I have four kids, like my four and five-year-old, I still don't really enjoy taking them out to dinner because it's kind of chaotic. In the midst of telling that story, there's one more story that I want to share, if you don't mind. In one of our states that we work in, we got a call from the the local community mental health organization and they had a client that was a teenager and almost homeless. Foster care wouldn't take them because of the, the behaviors they would engage in, very dangerous, aggressive, and like injurious behaviors. The individual was living in the ER, oftentimes living in a hospital institution. And they called us to see if we could help support this, this individual, like get to a place of like baseline that allow them to live in a home and, and be cared for and supported. And so we went into the hospital. I have a team of people that are incredibly compassionate, incredibly effective. And, and we worked with this child in a, in a way that like gave them the appropriate tools to communicate the appropriate ways to like ask for what they wanted and ways to like tolerate things that they happened that they didn't want to happen, but were still safe to them. 
within a matter of four months that the individuals returned to a foster home, is in a thriving home, is doing really well. Now comes to one of our centers where we have multiple kids and like participates in plays and and their life's been forever changed as a result of the services we're providing, which is incredibly meaningful. Because like when I think about our services providing socially meaningful results to like really impact the quality of life of an individual, taking a client that we served that was homeless without anyone caring for them to like being homed and being supported and loved on is pretty powerful. Yeah. Those are the things that drive us, right? For sure. We're going to close with books. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners? Man, it's a great question. Radical Candor uh, by Kim Scott is a book for those that, you know, are in leadership roles or want to be leaders, just want to be effective in communicating. I I spoke earlier about coming out of grad school and being kind of arrogant. In the book, Radical Candor, she talks about it being an obnoxious aggressor. Like I was like direct without caring for people, but I was direct. And I was proud of how direct I was. And if like people couldn't handle it, it was their issue. That didn't really work out too well for me. And so I, I went the opposite route, which is in the book she calls ruinous empathy, where I was kind of a pushover and just trying to be nice and liked by everybody. That didn't work out well. And so through this book and through some, I have an executive coach who's been working on like how to care personally for people, but also speak directly to them and uh, challenge them. And so that's been a book that's really made an impact on me. There's also a book called Meaningful Differences. Some people have heard of like the 30 million word gap that exists. And like in Fresno, we had a, you know, a movement, was it read, play and sing that people used to talk about. And it's all about like early childhood experiences that lead to children's success. And the book Meaningful Differences talks about the researchers and then the story of their, of, of the research they went through in Kansas of understanding how child development early on has a significant impact on vocabulary and reading. Those are the two books that come to mind. Yeah. Okay. To close, where can people find out more about Centria and where, where are you guys located in Fresno? Yeah. So my office here is at Fresno. It's on Herndon and first Santa Maria building and centriahealthcare.com. is where you can find out about us. We provide services across 14 States serving thousands of kids and we'd be happy to help. Anyone who needs help. And what are you working on next? Right now, we're working on artificial intelligence. We're doing kind of a buzzword in most, you know, most things right now. But in an industry like ours, like at this moment right now, there's 3,000 kids with autism receiving services from us and hundreds of data points being collected. And artificial intelligence is really going to help us support our BCBAs and our clinicians and like helping them make better decisions and providing them with better insights to our clients and their progress or lack of progress and decisions that they can make. And so we're really investing into some, some systems that can really leverage technology in a way that reduces some of the administrative process and practices of our clinicians and allows them just like make better decisions and support our clients in more meaningful ways. Wow. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, of course. It was great, man. I appreciate it. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.